0: How are you doing, Podcasts? Adam Buxton here. A lot of planes today. (laughs) What is going on? That is the longest plane noise I've ever heard, and it's just not stopping. What's the deal, Rosie? Are there planes just circling around here now? Oh, I tell you what it is. I can see them now. It's fighter jets. Or at least not commercial planes. I don't know what they're doing, if it's some sort of demonstration of strength from the city of Norwich. I'll just check that World War 3 hasn't kicked off. Go on BBC News. NHS in England to get 5.9 billion to cut waiting lists. Petrol prices to hit record high says the RAC hundreds refused entry as vaccine passports enforced in Scotland doesn't say anything about World War 3 today flipping heck we've got (laughs) that was hardcore jets directly above us it was like the sky was coming apart have you read the Stephen King time-travelling book? The name of which I can never remember, and it's the date of Kennedy's assassination, which is what it's all about. And still I can't remember the actual date. <laughs> I mean, I know it was 1963, but... What's the actual date? Oh, yeah, it's 11 is the name of the Stephen King book. But when they're um, jumping around in time in that book, one of the parallel timelines that they travel to is all screwed up and there's weird ripping sounds coming from the sky that's what it felt like just now with those jets oh anyway how you doing podcats i'm out here on a farm track towards the end of october 2021 with my best dog friend rosie who is on good form and just as i said that she squatted in front of me to deposit
1: some dog turds onto nature. In the circle of turds. Oh, it's quite nippy out here. I
0: don't want it to rain, because after I've recorded this intro, I'm just about to cycle off to Norwich Station on my pink Brompton and uh, travel to Birmingham to do a book show tonight, which is appropriate, because my guest for podcast number 166, is British comedian Darren Harriet, who grew up in that part of the world. Darren Fax. Darren, currently aged 33, grew up in Oldbury, near Birmingham. After school, he took on jobs as a nightclub bouncer and live-event security guard. Darren was one of the people providing security the day that Princess Katie and Lully Willie got married. Ah, happy times. Meanwhile, Darren was getting into stand-up comedy, and in the mid-2010s, aged around 26, he moved to London to pursue a life as a professional stand-up more
1: aggressively.
0: By the end of 2017, Darren had been nominated as Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe for his debut show, Defiant, billed as being about failure, strong opinions... And death, although that sounds like one of those summaries that you come up with in two minutes just before the uh, flyers go to print. It's very jetty today. I apologize if you uh, don't like the sound of jets. It wasn't long before darren was invited to appear on the uk's biggest stand-up tv showcase live at the apollo and he found himself on stage at the legendary hammersmith venue where just a few years before he'd been one of the security staff in fact several of his former security colleagues were on duty that night and cheered him on it's like a film in the last few years darren has become an increasingly familiar face on british tv panel shows as well as continuing to perform live and appear on the radio. You can still hear his excellent Radio 4 series, Black Label, on BBC Sounds. That series was recorded in 2019 and features material from Darren's first couple of stand-up shows, in which he talked about growing up in the black country, his association with local gangs, and his relationship with his troubled father. Subjects we also covered in this conversation, which was recorded remotely in late May of this year, 2021. And as you will hear, this was our second attempt at a podcast ramble. We actually met back in 2018 when Darren Starr was on the rise. But it was good to be able to catch up and see how his perspective on some of the more difficult events of his youth had shifted and where he was at with them now. Speaking of which, I should say that the subject of suicide comes up in this conversation. Parts of Darren's story are certainly harsh and sad, but Darren is able to talk about them with impressive, not detachment exactly, but kind of -of matter-of-factness and a lack of self-pity. And his characteristic giant grin... Is never too far away. Although you won't see that because this is audio only, but I saw it on Zoom and it was nice. I'll be back at the end for another short slice of waffle, but right now with Darren Harriet. Here we go. <laughs> him, I admit him, I admit him, I admit him, and now I'm pressing admit. Hello. There he is. How's it going? I'm
2: good, man. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. I have a question you might know. Yes. Do you know how I get the, the beeping off my emails to stop? <laughs> good question.
0: Uh It does my head in. It, how do you do it? I would say that is, are you on a Mac or a PC? I'm on a Mac, yeah. It says... Click on the Apple menu. Yeah. Select system preferences. Click on notifications.
2: Ah, there we go. Notifications. Okay, Click on the
0: name of the app whose behavior you would like to modify. Alerts. Uh, Bad icon. Pop up. I'm just going to switch it all off. I could do a whole Genius Bar podcast with me just Googling the answers to things. That is
2: great. I'm ne- never going to switch that back on. I hate that noise so much.
0: It's so weird, isn't it? Like, it bugs me as well, and it always goes off when I'm podcasting. Yeah. And I always try and make some reference to it and say, oh, that's the person I was just talking about emailing me. Or oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> but I've only got that
0: one joke, and I've done that now several times. But it never occurred to me to just find out how to turn it off and turn it off but now i've done Check that off. so thanks man you've already okay. improved my day <laughs> <laughs> what else should i improve look at us let's fix another problem in our lives <laughs> that we just put up with and don't actually sit down and figure <laughs> out what's in your uh, top three anxieties that you're happy to talk about on a podcast at the moment major or minor uh, I
2: think the email alert was number one. <laughs> email alert number one. That's number one. Well, they don't, you don't get a charger with a new phone anymore, which is very annoying. I brought the new iPhone and you don't get a charger with it. I had no idea. Really? No, they, they, you don't get them on the new iPhone 12 or the 12 Maxes. The
1: 12?
2: Yeah. What is so great about the 12? Uh, it's got three cameras on the back. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I went from an 8 to a 12. I really jumped the gun. I learnt to walk, and then instead of getting on a plane, I just got a jetpack and just completely <laughs> took off. Yeah, I don't know what the difference is, other than it's just got three cameras on the back. I mean, I can't really tell any difference. I thought I turned off my alerts. It's just pinged at me. I don't say that. I thought we saw... Sus- See, I've got pings in, like, text messages, but I don't know how to get the text messages off. <laughs> I feel like this is the most boomer conversation. <laughs> I'm sorry, people listening, but... The- <laughs> <laughs> How are you supposed to charge your your iPhone 12 then? Well, what they really want you to do is buy the new one, which was exactly what I did. I brought this new iPhone charger and it doesn't go into the phone. It sort of goes... You sit the phone on it and it charged it in that one. The wireless pad. The wireless pad, this thing, Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the point is of it, really, because it's still got the bottom USB port in. It does. And no one uses that anymore. Yeah, but you don't have to physically plug it in yourself last thing at night. I feel like it's, I've, I've you know, you spend all this money on all this tech, Apple tech. I don't think it's as futuristic as I'd hoped. No. I feel like a lot of it is just... The same, but with a new screen or a new look. I remember, like back in the day, you'd get a, you know, somebody had a new phone when I was at school, and it was like, oh, your phone looks like a desktop. It's like a keyboard. It had all these buttons on and all this other stuff. And now they're all just the same, with like an extra camera on the back or a better screen. They haven't even bothered with the uh, the whole. Remember when the whole thing was we need to make it as thin as possible? Yeah, that was it. We want. <laughs> Thin phones, thin, tiny, they're they're all the same now. You know, I see that um, there's a new, I think it's a new Nokia, I think it was, that I saw an advert for the other day, and it's a flip phone. And I was like, oh no, they're running out of ideas now, where they're like, we're going to bring back the flip phone. No one needs that anymore. Well, they'll be going around on all those same ideas forever,
0: really, until the next thing is implants. When it becomes biotech, that's the next frontier. Then it'll be, it'll all be about like, whereabouts have you had your tech implanted? Has your body rejected it? Did you accidentally shit it out? That kind of thing. But before then, yes, you're right. It was always how small it was. That was the big fetish thing. And then there was the foldy phones recently, wasn't there? The foldy ones, yeah. Like with one screen,
2: but you can fold the screen in half. Have you ever met anyone who has one of those? No. No. I mean, it's it's so strange when you meet somebody who doesn't have... An iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> like My friend's... I can't remember what it's called. Huawei, my friend had before. Oh, okay. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> Every, and he goes, oh, the tech's so much better. And I guarantee the tech is so much better. But whenever I speak to most people, they always go, oh, it's AirDrop. Uh-huh. AirDrop, is, AirDrop is like the game changer for Apple. Because I don't appreciate it because it's just a thing that we're used to. But everyone says that they don't have anything like AirDrop All these other um, <laughs> networks. I'm like, oh, so that's... That's where, all the mon- that's where all our money's going into. <laughs> nice quick airdrop. Uh, Great. As a 52-year-old man,
0: I don't rely on airdrop every single day of my life. I mean, occasionally it's useful,
2: and it is a fun thing, but it's not a game-changer for me. I think the only reason we have airdrop is because they make it so hard to use any sort of USBs yeah, or cables. that's the thing.
0: They're moving towards a wireless universe, which is, in theory, a good thing, but the Apple dominance in the market does seem to be i don't know it seems to be slipping mind you if i'm saying it then it's almost certainly wrong and uh, whatever i (laughs) say
2: always bet the opposite of what adam exactly that's a good
0: it's a good way of figuring out like if i make a prediction okay we can be pretty certain it's going to be the opposite of that how old are you down 32 32 so you're quite a bit younger than i am you're 20 years younger than i am yeah so your references will be massively different than mine. But what were the things you remember being blown away by as you were growing up, as you were a, a 10-year-old or an adolescent? Being blown away by? Like bits of tech,
2: either either sort of, you know, just games or mm. whatever it might be. I remember... Uh... Well, we had a PlayStation. I remember having a PlayStation, PS One, PS Two, back in like the nineties. But I remember the Nintendo sixty four was like something that I remember because it had four controllers and four people could play at once on a split screen. Even now, talking about it, it's so crazy to think of. Now that I think about it, it was so messy because it's just a big computer. And there's all these wires and there's four screens, and we're all playing on these, you know, tiny screens. And I remember that blowing me away. Um, I remember when phones started having cameras on mm-hmm. in school um that was cre- and it was like you know seven second clips. What else blew me away what What blew you away that you can remember well, digital watches <laughs> that's how old I am
0: okay when someone came digital in digital watch yeah and they had a digital watch there was a show. On at the time I think it was called the Gemini Man I'm going to check the Gemini Man because I haven't thought about this for years but the Gemini Man he was um, a laid back denim clad motorcycle riding secret agent called Sam Casey while diving to retrieve a fallen Soviet spy satellite
1: he was exposed to radiation in an underwater explosion which rendered him invisible
0: it's one of the dangers of working on the nice.
2: I like
1: that
0: yeah You didn't get that in Chernobyl. Hey, guys! (laughs) Turns out I've got a great superpower. No, it was much more melty than that in Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. In reality. But anyway, he had a digital watch, this guy, in the Gemini Man, and it would make him vanish. Somehow he managed to mod his... uh, he used a watch to controlled his invisibility but he could only be invisible for 15 minutes or else he would die I like so that. so he had a special watch uh, and it was a digital watch and it was one of the first time i'd seen a digital watch and i just thought wow that is absolutely cool he's basically got a computer on his wrist and then when people started turning up at school with them i couldn't believe it and it was the the little red led was it led i don't know what it was it was it was a red display and then when someone turned up with... The calculator one. With
1: the calculator one. The Holy
0: calculator shit. one. That,
2: that was a game changer. It's <laughs> unbelievable.
0: And then, because these things were happening every few months, and then when someone came in and they had Space Invaders on their watch... Ah. Uh, and you could play that, because I absolutely loved all that, you know, Pong and... Space Invaders on your watch. Space Invaders on your watch, on your watch,
2: on That's your watch. That's an That's tough. That's that that must be really tough to play on you on your watch. Absolutely. Now that I think of it. Totally
0: infuriating and not fun at all. But you'd beg to be able to borrow the
2: guy's watch and and have a go. Game Boy was crazy. Yeah. When that first came out. Game Boy. Because it it just introduced I mean, the idea of being able to play like Mario on the go. (laughs) I think Game Boy was a great one. Tamagotchi was another one. (laughs) Did you have a Tamagotchi? Tamagotchi was crazy. I did. I remember having a Tamagotchi. It didn't last very long. You killed it. I remember I had to restart it a few times. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I'm seven. You know, I can't have responsibility at that age. You can't expect me to look after something then. I just did not
0: understand the point of a Tamagotchi. (laughs) I understood that you, here was the thing, you had to keep it alive by kind of playing with it Otherwise, what? I
2: mean, what was it? That's it. That's all it is. You know, when you look at, especially kids' toys, you, I always remember the, um, you know, the the dolls aimed at girls, and it was like, you look after the doll. It cries. Uh-huh. A bit of pee comes out of it and all that. And I think Tamagotchi was just a less messy version of that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Appealing
0: to the heartening human desire to look after things.
2: That's nice. Exactly. I always feel very lucky to have been... Uh, a child of the sort of nineties and the early noughties. Cause it, you just like, you know, similar to when, how you feel, how you saw the progression of things. Mm. Like I remember me and my mates would try and make music and we were listening back on cassettes. And then I remember CDs. And then I remember, oh, there's a Sony Ericsson Walkman phone, which you put the songs on as MP3s and you can listen to your music as an MP3. What? And then you start downloading. That was pre-iPod, was it? Yes. Yeah. For, as far as I remember, yeah. Because it was all LimeWire and Kazar oh. and all those um, sort of free sites. And I remember we would all download all these songs. And it was around the same time when you would, uh, you would pay to get ringtones. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the ringtones used to be... That's money. You know, well you'd spent. get monotone ringtones, which were terrible. And then... Within like two years, it wasn't monotone anymore. It was the actual song, polyphonic, polyphonic. Now that I think about it, it was just like an extra hiat. <laughs> it just felt like you had like an extra hiat and a bit more drums. But yeah, game changers, game changers. And then by the time I left, it was like you could just put, the, you know, a clip of an actual song as a ringtone. Yeah. But barely anyone did that, really. And now I think we've gone. The opposite way with youth, maybe because of social media, no one calls each other anymore, but it's all you know if you if you see somebody with an actual ringtone who's like eighteen it's it's strange to hear because i don't hear ringtones anymore. My phone is always on silent mm-hmm. like I miss calls all the time. I will answer it if i 'm looking at my phone i'll answer it if I miss it, I can call you back, but I think the uh, the whole ringtone trend is uh is is gone now that's
0: going maybe it'll be a retro thing to have ringtones again and and then you'll be able to buy those books that you used to be able to buy like they used to have books in actual shops that were just full of numbers and codes so that you could program your phone to play a ringtone that was your favorite song you know what I mean so you (laughs) buy a book and and hopefully it would have I don't know knocking on heaven's door that's a good uh modern reference for you that's a classic yeah and then you (laughs) Then you have to sit there for an afternoon, laboriously programming in like one, two, 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 three, W, five, five, you know, and then wow. and then at the end of it, it's
1: me, 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 me,
0: but as you say now, it's just
1: mmm, mmm, mmm.
0: I'm checking my account at the Memory Bank The Memory Bank, The Memory Bank We're thanking you for
1: banking all your memories I'd like to take out a happy memory thanks The Memory Bank, The Memory Bank Ooh, sorry, but you're very overdrawn I will repay with interest when I get back up on my happy feet The Memory Bank, The Memory Bank But sorry, but we're closing your account My what? Where am I? The memory bank. The memory bank. We're the nice bank. Would you like to bank
0: with us? We actually spoke and recorded a conversation a few years ago. Regular listeners to this podcast will be familiar with my occasional propensity to let things slip through the cracks for various reasons. (laughs) And I thought that rather than go back and just edit the conversation we had in 2018, which did have some um, technical problems anyway, I thought, let's just check in. Because a lot's happened. I don't know if you know, Darren, but uh, it's been a long three years <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Does it feel yep, that way yep. to you? Um, yeah, I think I feel like I've come a long way since then. Yeah. When we spoke, you said you were hoping to move out of the place that you were sharing in Wembley. And you said there was a bad smell in yeah. there. And your dream was to have your own fridge.
2: Got my own fridge. Hey, congratulations! Got my own fridge. I've, I've done it. Yeah, yeah, I moved out. Uh, I've been here now for like two years. So I moved out about a year after we did that podcast. Okay. And uh, it's so much better living by yourself. <laughs> oh, wow. It's amazing. Like everything just feels better. My mental health. Um, I, 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 you know, I was alone during all of the sort of lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started to feel quite, quite lucky because I felt like I was, I didn't have to necessarily worry about people in the house. Cause I remember being in the house share, And because there was so many people in and out, I could, you know, I would have been stressed during lockdown because they they wouldn't have followed rules. People would have been in and out and all that sort of stuff. So it was nice to just, you know, sort of have be alone and um, try and figure out some stuff during all of that. And, yeah, I just felt much better. Also, it's, you know, it's a sense of accomplishment that I I didn't know I would feel because I, you know, when I moved in 2014, I was... Uh, A security guard, a really struggling comedian stroke security guard. And um, I managed to get myself in a position to live alone in London now, which is really nice.
0: And you had sort of a five year plan, as I recall. Am I right in saying that if you you told yourself that if you hadn't made it in five years or even if you had made it, maybe then you were going to
2: move back to Birmingham and live with your nan? Yep, that's it. Uh, I've been here seven years. Uh, (laughs) I think I'm in a position where I can move now back, which is really nice. But um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like I'm right on the edge of something because London, you know, London, it's a hub, man. It's busy. It's hive. And, uh, you know, I would love to live with my nan and move back with my family and see everyone all the time and all that sort of stuff. But I think I think I've maybe got one more year here. Mm -hmm. I think one more year. And then I think I can buy that house uh, in Birmingham on the Black Country. Um, but you know, I said that three years ago. <laughs> and, They're uh, sucking you in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remind me
0: again how you made the transition from working as a security guard and a bouncer when you were what in your early twenties? Is this?
2: Yes, yeah, like yeah.
0: To actually um, starting to do comedy, like how did that happen?
2: So I was always doing comedy with it. I did my first ever gig when I was 18. Um, I did a few. I did gigs, sure, but I wasn't like writing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It was just, you know, I liked comedy, but I just did not have that kind of, you know, dedication to sit down and, and work at it. And so throughout the years, I was doing various jobs. And a lot of the jobs that I would do, I would end up leaving because, you know, there was a, we always got to that brick wall of um we need you in friday to do this shift and i'd be like i can't i've got to do a gig in derby for no money and they're like well if you don't do it you're gonna leave and i'd be like gonna to have to go and uh, so they never worked out for me those sort of jobs and uh, luckily i was living with my mom and then security i heard security was like a zero hour contract thing you're not tied into any contracts you can work when you want and that just appealed to me because there's no way i could have done comedy and worked a full-time job and yeah so I did that and then I was doing security in Birmingham luckily one of the companies I worked for they had offices all around in London included and um, yeah and then 2014 summertime 2014 I just decided I was depressed I was upset about my career after all these years of doing comedy and I just said right I gotta go to London everyone tells me you gotta go to London London's where it is London's where it happens for people I saw what was going on with Joe Lyser because he was from Brom, and I knew him and i was like oh well joe did it you know for a bit i should maybe go down there and i should do it and i just packed my things and i went to london uh on my birthday on my 26th birthday with about i think i had 600 pounds in my bank account which i remember i had that because that was my rent for uh, my next month's rent that was all i had yeah and um about a year later i got signed to an agent who i'm still with and then the following year uh, after that in uh, 2016, I did a Edinburgh, like a, a compilation show, The Reserve, which paid for me. And then the following year, around August, September time, I found out I was doing live at the Apollo for the first time. And then doing live at the Apollo, that was the reason why I was able to just go, OK, I'm able to go full time. Um, before then, in 2016, I did Russell Howard's stand-up show that he had on Comedy Central, which was great. And when I did it, funnily, I was I was working at a university, um, University of Westminster, And I came on the TV on one of my shifts. No way. Just this big TV. I saw it and I saw the episode and I heard Russell go, and look who's this day, Darren Harry. And I turned the TV channel over as quickly as I could (laughs) because the last thing I needed was those students. You know, how weird would that be? What? Yeah. What? Is that you? Uh, And it was nice. It, It was nice because it slowly... It slowly built up, I think. Uh, and everything, everything that happened for me started happening when I was in London. Right. As soon as I moved to London, it was just... I came here with, like, a dedication, you know? One, I knew London, you know, it's quite expensive. And I never lived alone as well. I left my mom's house. So it was just me for the first time on my own. And I had to try and juggle security shifts with doing comedy. And the problem I had was that a lot of the security shifts that I did because of the company, it was all gigs. Oh, yeah. So I saw a lot of music gigs. And the problem with music gigs, of course, is the times are comedy gig times. Right. So I would start a shift at 5 till half 10. And, you know, obviously I'd want to do a gig. So I was quite lucky about a year and a half before I finally quit that I got a job working at the university doing night shifts. So it was 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. And so I could do a gig in London for around you know half eight nine at a push and then i would do a uh, superman change in the burger king toilets down by piccadilly change into my security clothes and then head there and do the night shift at the university and uh you know i've still sort of pinched myself every day that i managed to make that work yeah i don't know how how any of that really worked but wow that's impressive man you
0: obviously had a lot of drive and a lot of energy i was listening to your Radio 4 shows, Black Label. Oh, thanks. Really good, man. I really enjoyed them. And lots of stuff in there that I didn't realise about you, a lot of which you've talked about in your stand-up over the years, but I didn't realise that you were actually part of a gang when you were in Birmingham. And you're funny about it, <laughs> especially the name of the gang. What was the name of the gang?
2: Terror Clan Killers. With an A-Z. <laughs> Killaz. Yeah, from A-Z. K-I-L-L-A-Z. Who sat down and thought of the name? Did you have a meeting? I remember a few of my friends in the gang really liked TCK for some reason. I don't know why, but TCK, they had that in their head, and then it just became about fitting words for it. So... Okay. I remember Terror Clan Killers. One of the alternatives was Total Control Crew. Crew is <laughs> so cringy. <laughs> Crews felt with a K. Yeah. We didn't really like that one too much.
0: You could have been the cool kids. The cool
2: kids. Exactly. (laughs) That's way better. But
0: uh, it should be pointed out that other gangs around at the time included the Burger Bar crew
2: and the Johnson crew. Yeah. They were so scary. The Burger Bar crew, especially in the early noughties, were responsible for so many shootings. Oh, my God. Um There was a really famous shooting still in Birmingham on New Year's Eve. These two girls got shot with an Uzi.
0: (gasps) An Uzi?
2: Yeah, it was like an Uzi machine gun. They sprayed it. So it was New Year's Eve. They were partying at like the Johnson's rival place or whatever. And these guys drove past looking for someone and they just like sprayed it. And uh, these two girls, uh, Charlene Ellish and Letitia Shakespeare, everyone knows the names because it was just such a big story, such Mm. a tragic story of what happened. And I remember being... 14 and you know with every gang there's always one person or two people in that gang who are not gangsters Mm -hmm. like I wasn't a gangster I never really had that life I even though my dad passed away when I was a kid and it was rough and all that it I never grew up in like a really rough upbringing or anything like that like that really that really hit me that did it it just caught me off guard yeah I'm, I'm sure previous to that though
0: did you have any awareness that that kind of stuff was going on, that
2: people in those gangs were really involved in stuff that was so dark? Yeah. So there was a radio station. It was a pirate radio station. Think Corrupt FM. Mm-hmm. Almost the exact same, pretty much. It was called Passion FM in Birmingham. And there was different crews. And every crew would come on. Like Monday at 2 a.m. would be this crew. Everybody would listen in and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of those gangs who were rapping in MC and MCing were like legit gangsters. And we wanted to be one of those gangs more for the music at first. And then I remember one of my friends pulled out a knife. He'd got a knife from his cousin. And then my other friend had a knife. And then it was like, well, we've all just got to get knives because I'm not going to be the only one without a knife. So I ended up getting a knife from like uh, just local like hardware store that just had really crazy flip knives. And I remember getting one of them as well. And I knew that two of the guys in the gang were very... They all had really bad tempers, you know. Um, I think I had a temper as well. The one thing that I know that we all had in common that we just didn't speak about was we all just didn't have dads. There was no father figures in any of our... All six of us didn't have dads. Didn't have dads, didn't have good... Well, my dad was dead. My other friend's dad was in prison. My other friend's dad was never met his dad ever. Mm -hmm. Didn't know who his dad was. Another person's dad was an alcoholic, drug addict. One was, like, abusive. So... We all really put a lot of value and stock into this TCK gang because we felt like we were all protected, and also we were all we were all poor kids. We were all free school meal kids, uh, very you know working class kids. Um, but I had quite a lucky escape out of the gang because they beat me up. So they they put me in hospital on New Year's Eve, um, New Year's Eve two thousand and I want to say two thousand four, which at the time you know it was embarrassing you know macho toughness was all was like a part of my thing and they they beat me up and this is you aged 15 or something yeah 15 16 yeah 16 because it was my last year of school and i remember it because you know you got to imagine these guys were some of my best friends at school Mm -hmm. and then we fell out over a song i was a producer so i made a song they used it i said they couldn't use it they used it we got into an argument They beat me up. It was as simple and as stupid as that. Where did they use it? It was supposed to be used for some other people, I think. And I sent it to them to listen to. And they liked it. And they ended up recording like a track with it or something like that. And I remember being like, you can't do that because it's not finished. And it's supposed to be for so-and-so. And And they said, shut up. And then I was like, you shut up. And then we met up. And then they just beat me up. And yeah. It's like the Fleetwood Mac story. (laughs) And I felt felt so lucky because I could have been stabbed easily. Like, they they all carried knives. I could have been stabbed. I was beaten up pretty badly. I had to spend the the night in um, hospital. Jesus, had you ever been beaten up before then? No, not not beaten up now. So I had to deal with all that as well. And then, so it happened in December, obviously, January 1st. I didn't go back to school until maybe nearer the end of January because I just wanted to wait for some of the bruising to go down because I was still bruised. The last thing I needed was to go to school with everybody. Everybody knew what had happened. Yeah. But, you know, I couldn't turn up with, like, black eyes. I just wasn't going to do that at all. So I waited for the bruising to go down. And then I went back to school. And I just remember the last, what is it, February, March, April, May. I remember the last four months of school just being the most awkward, horrible time. Because the guys that were, like, my, supposed to be, like, my really good friends, I hated them didn't want to talk to them and so I had to kind of almost establish a new set of people to hang about with because I couldn't hang about with them anymore because it was just it just felt really awkward and I had a lot of anger from that it took me about seven years to truly no longer want revenge on them I mean I was I was already doing comedy and I still had that angering me about them beating me up and um what kind of things were you imagining though were you fantasizing about actually exacting your revenge oh yeah i i I went further than imagining it i actually was i knew so out of the the whole crew the one who beat me up was there was this guy who was really good friends with really good friends i mean he came to my nan's house i remember i sold i gave him my nintendo at the time or whatever like we're friends like it was something like that we just had the best bond out of everyone in the gang and he did the most damage in the end he did the most he did the most damage in the end and i knew where he lived and i remember from the age of about 17 all the way to about gosh 21 he was my number one it was kind of like you know kill bill Mm -hmm. where she's got revenge on all these people yeah and uh, there's, there's that one person who's just like, oh, Bill's the number one. Well, he was like my Bill. I'll get all the others. I'll get all the others. I know that one of them's got a shotgun in the bloody cereal. I'll, I'll take care of that one now. Rip the eye out of the other one and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but he was my one. And I remember waiting outside his house. So I knew where he lived in a park called Smevik. And I remember waiting across the road randomly. It would just come to me. I was just so angry, I would just go, right, I'm going to go wait on his road, turn around, sit so he can't see me, and then I'll wait there until he walks out of his house, and then I'm going to run up to him, and I'm just going to hit him. That was my plan, and then I sort of let it go a bit out of me, and then I was about 20, I want to say I was in my early 20s, and I was walking in the area, and I saw him, I hadn't seen him in years, I have not spoken to him since school, And I heard that he had a child. Mm -hmm. I heard he had become quite a young dad. And I saw him walking down the street and he was walking with this little girl. And this girl looked about three, four. And it was just cute. It's just a dad walking, holding hands with his little girl and she's smiling. And I saw him and I went, oh, he's grown up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's a dad. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't think about me so you kidnapped the kid okay I kid I, kid I kid I still punched him and taught the kid as collateral and um uh, yeah i just it, it made me it actually made me think i need to grow up and like you know a, achieve something in my life because i'm still hanged up on this schoolyard sort of confrontation from you know five years before whatever it was
0: and how was your um how was your mum dealing with it when you were going through this phase, when you started
2: hanging out with these people in the gang and stuff like that? My mum was just working a lot. She knew I wasn't in the right crowd and stuff. You you know, you can always tell when your kid starts with stuff like that. You know, she knew the way I was dressing. Basically, it was like, you know, the So Sully Crew 21 Seconds video. Mm-hmm. So it was basically that slits in the eyebrows, going to start wearing these weird headbands, hoodies up and all that sort of stuff. She knew that it, but she didn't know what was going on. She didn't know about the knife. She only really found out that something really bad was happening when I got beaten up and she came to the hospital and she, you know, she's crying. What's going on? What's what? You know, it was rougher. It was a tough time for her, but she, she didn't know that I was still so furious about it all. And there was no way for her to really know because she knew when I was 18 that I'd started comedy. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, they sound too conflicting, doesn't it? That I've got this anger in me that I'm waiting outside this guy's house because I literally want to kill him. And then I'm, you know, now trying to tell jokes. So I guess in her head, she never thought that I was uh, still angry about it.
0: Yeah. And do you think that there was anything she could have said to you at the time that would have changed your ways? Or really, were you just on that path and there was nothing that she could really have done about it?
2: Yeah, I think at the time when it happened, because when you're in school, ego and the way that you perceived and coolness was all we had. We didn't have money. We, you know, we struggled for a lot of things. But the fact that people thought that, You know, were cool or popular and all that sort of stuff meant everything to us because we didn't really have anything else. So, Mm -hmm. the idea that people were like laughing at me or thought it was funny that I got beaten up by these by by my friends, the fact that I had missed school for two to three weeks—that's why you didn't want them to see the black eyes. That's why I didn't want them to see the black eyes because I just I didn't want them to see me looking weak, and I definitely didn't want them to see. I didn't, you know, I didn't want the, the my ex friends to see. That uh, what they had done, but I knew that they, I knew that they felt bad for a lot, a lot of it, because they had said that they, they they felt really bad about what had yeah. happened and um, what had gone down. But uh, you know, you so young at that age, and you know, sure. I imagine
0: the answers probably no, but were you in a position when you were with that unit? When things were going well with your mates and in your gang, were you in a position to talk about real things and to talk about how you felt about certain things that had happened to you about your dads or whatever it might be? Or were those,
2: you just couldn't really have those conversations? Never had those conversations. No, you never, never spoke about feelings. You got to remember, we were 14 year old kids obsessed with gangs and gangsters i mean we were just we you know i i I, we were like homophobes we were little kids who were just anything was was gay to us right you know if there was if somebody put their arm around my shoulder and tried to talk we're doing gay you know it was that sort of a it was that sort of thing and um i think it would have been really i mean it would have been great for us to have been able to (laughs) have spoke about our feelings because everything we spoke about, especially when it came to our dads, our dads were always, uh, it was, it was so, it was so obvious that was the catalyst for everything that was going on with us. Um, But we only ever spoke about our dads in terms of like what they had done. So like when I said all my friends' dads, one's never met his dad, one was in prison, my dad's dead, my other dad was abusive. That was it. Never got into any in depth, never heard anything else about it. Um, it would have been nice for us to sort of sit down and just chat. And I, I, I've got, I've heard a few things about them since for some of them. Some of them's not good. Some of them have gone down the way that, you know, you'd think lots of prison. Last time I spoke to one from school who I was, who was friends with them and friends with me in the middle, but he was definitely more on their side. It was like on the run from the police and all that sort of stuff. And I've had a bit of feedback from, the, the main one who i was really good friends with the one that really really hurt me in the end whose house i was waiting at, he, t- he told my friend that he was really proud of what i'm doing oh that's cool yeah which was really i, I you know i didn't expect it he said oh, i was you know i'm really proud of darren it's really great what he's doing and you know big up to him and all that sort of stuff and yeah do you think that because of the kind of person that you are you are
0: always going to get out or do you feel as if it was touch and
2: go and actually things could have easily gone the other way. I think I would have got out eventually. The problem was we all had such short tempers and I'm so grateful that I grew up where I grew up because, you know, you hear of certain parts where there's so many rival gangs all in the same area. I grew up in the black country. And if you, in Birmingham, if you start going to more Uh, The Birmingham gang sides like Aston and all those places where or like Hansworth, where you really do get Burger Bar Johnson's fighting on a regular basis. There is a good chance I would have been caught up in that because I remember I I, I told people before I said I carried a knife for a few months. But if somebody had attacked me or, or rival gangs or any of that stuff, I definitely would have pulled out the knife. And there's a really good chance I could have stabbed somebody or slashed somebody over, over, like, nothing. I mean, I remember going to under 15, 14 clubs when I was, like, 12, 13, me and my friends would go. Uh, I, I remember we went to this nightclub in, in Aston in Birmingham, which was notorious back then for just gangs and just trouble, and we heard it on the pirate radio station, and it says, you know, uh, blah, 6 p.m., blah, 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 uh, ID not required, which I thought was a really weird thing to say, but I guess it was, like, a youth club thing. And we all turned off. We, we went after school. We all turned up. We got ready to go. And we we're in there. And it was full of our level celebrities. Like it was, oh, that's so-and-so from Passion FM. That's the DJ so-and-so. That's so-and-so. And it was nice to put a face to all these people that we'd been hearing on the pirate radio. And about 10 minutes in, these guys walk in. And they've all got their hoods up and all this sort of stuff. But we knew something was going down because they all walked in together. So we were like, oh, is that, what crew's that? and this is really dating it, they walked up to everybody in the club and pulled a lighter out and put the lighter right to your face because they wanted to see what you looked like. There was no lights on the back of phones right. back then. And I remember sort of, you know, dancing and just seeing these guys put lighters to faces and he put it up to my face. And I was looking at the guy and he was just trying to see and he found whoever they were looking for and they, they beat this guy up really, really bad. Like they found this guy, it kicked off. I remember me and my friend, this is how tough we were. We were hiding behind a speaker, just out of the way. What is going on? I mean, I was 15 yeah. and they beat this guy up and the ambulance had to come and they kind of like stretched, him. They had stretched the guy out and stuff. They really got to him. But there was lots of those moments. And I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't a part of me that was like intrigued by it yeah. or excited by some of it because it was like, oh yeah, this is kind of the world that we're in, but... Right, it's um, like you're living in a gangster movie or something. Exactly, yeah, yeah.
0: That is a sinister image, those people coming in and with their little lighters and stuff. Holy Moses, that would be a, yeah. a scary scene in a movie.
2: It was just a lighter and just a really angry face, and you just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. never forget that.
0: And you say, how old were you when your dad passed away then?
2: Uh, I was 11. 11. When my dad died, yeah. Man. Yeah. It it was um so my dad died in March two thousand and then September two thousand I started high school, big school, you know. So mm. I didn't really have much time to deal with my dad's death. And then next thing you know, I'm in high school and you know, going through puberty, new people, friends you know what, what am i going to do for in my life my career and then that's when i've made friends with these people who we ended up starting a gang with maybe a year later after that and um because you know i felt like i had nowhere to go i couldn't talk to my mom i couldn't talk to my family about that sort of stuff you know everybody was just dealing with it the best they could and had you been close with your pa was he around when you were growing up it's weird cuz i i find stuff out about my dad every few years so my dad was a drug dealer uh and a drug addict and when i said drug addict it was like smoking weed he'd been smoking weed since he was you know 12 rastafarian so it wasn't even weed it was just like super strong cannabis and all that and uh slowly his mind was deteriorating i only found out a few years after his death that he was in and out of prison i only have a handful of memories of my dad and all amazing memories all amazing but everything that i have for my dad it's always moments like oh i remember when my dad turned up at christmas and got us his nintendo 64 Ah, oh, amazing oh i remember when my dad took me and all my cousins to sega world i remember when my dad turned up at my it's stuff like that it's never like oh yeah we just sat down and watched tv and we just did because we never saw him that much mm-hmm. so this is something that i definitely want to look to find out more about but he was, I'm sure there was like a year or two when I didn't see him, potentially, because I wouldn't know because he was in prison and I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then he died
0: in prison, is that right?
2: Yeah, he died in prison, yeah. So uh, I remember, I want to say it was around Christmas time, 1999. My dad called my nan's house because I was always at my nan's with my brother and we had a chat on the phone and again, oh dad, hello, oh how you doing? You know, all that sort of stuff. Really excited to hear from him Hmm. and um, it was weird because it definitely had a a finality in everything he was saying. You know, he was just like, make sure you work hard, you study hard, look after your mom, do all this sort of stuff and you know, I'm a kid. I'm like, yeah dad, I will, you know, Yeah, 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 I will, you know, all that and we had a really nice chat and i remember i um i hung up the phone after we spoke he asked for my brother my brother wasn't in and i hung up the phone and then i tried to check tra- trace the number back which was um what was it 1471 i think it was a number or something like that you trace it and it gives you a number and i remember i pressed it and it said uh this number is not you're not able to trace this number this number is untraceable or whatever it was and i remember going downstairs because it was two phones, downstairs phone, upstairs phone. I answered the upstairs house phone, went downstairs. My nan was in the front room. And I said to my nan, because she didn't know who I'd spoken to. I said, nan, what does it mean when you call, when you trace a number and it says uh, this number is on, you know, untraceable or whatever? And my nan went, oh, it means somebody's calling from maybe prison? And I remember going, oh, and I didn't say anything. And then that was when I clicked that my dad was calling from prison and he was in prison. And then it was about three months after that, we found out he died. He'd, uh, he'd killed himself. And my my mum said quite recently that he had asked her to come and visit with me and my brother to the prison um, not long before he died. And my mum said, no, she didn't want to take two young boys to a prison. I think she just felt like, yeah. I I, I, I don't blame her for that to be honest it'd be weird seeing my dad behind uh you know the, the glass and all that sort of stuff especially because we didn't know what was going on but um yeah so we passed away uh march 2000 After that,
0: man i'm sorry and i hope you don't mind me asking you these questions that's, that's hard and how is that a sort of ongoing process of finding out and sort of processing all that stuff does it does it weigh on you or are you the kind of person that can kind of compartmentalise it and just move on with your own life and not um, think, overthink about those kinds of things?
2: I think it weighs on me more now. It weighs on me more now as an adult who is at the age where you think about having kids. Yes. And you think about having a family and I know that I've not had a good example of a good dad in my life. Um, well a typical sort of dad and I'm still dealing with issues of um, you know you never feel like you're quite good enough there's this thing where if somebody commits suicide especially a parent you'll always go in your mind you'll always think you're not good enough you think oh well they they went because you you know because you're just not good enough so I've always been battling that uh, all my life and then um, there is that thought of I've struggled with my own mental health and my own self-worth and suicidal thoughts and all that and then I think what if I have kids? You know, my kids going to get that. I'm going to have to explain my dad's history to my kids. And then, you know, are they going to have problems because they they, you know, I what happened after my dad died was I started reading lots about suicide and parents and statistics and all that sort of stuff. A lot of that's out of my head now. It didn't really ha- it didn't really help me back then. Do you remember coming across anything
0: that did help? Was there any that someone said to you or that you read that helped you get some perspective on it
2: um you don't have to say i mean if there wasn't then don't worry but my auntie tried her best to make me feel better once She just said darren look your dad just decided it was his time to go which doesn't really sound like it's that helpful but in a way it kind of changed my thoughts on my dad's death it was like yeah he chose his time to go Like, in a way, he had his own... He was in control, in a Mm -hmm. way. Which really helped me for a little bit uh, when my auntie said that to me, because, you know, my mum's not the type to say that. Um, But I was, you know, I was reading up on statistics about parents that die, and, and then, you know, people were talking about suicide genes and all that sort of stuff, and I got into comedy. I remember my first gig, first ever gig I did at age 18. I remember being outside, sitting on the wall looking at the venue i was about to do my first ever stage gig in looking at a picture on my phone of my dad just being just feeling really sad and really really down cuz i knew that i wasn't doing comedy for me well in a way i was doing it for me to you know uh, cuz it was something new and exciting but i knew that it was in my in my own way it was me trying to reach out to him me trying to connect with him in some way um but i've i've i think I, well, I started therapy quite recently i 'm mm-hmm. um, only like four sessions in, but it 's really helped to speak to somebody outside and just try and understand why i 've had because i I think a lot of my problems all stem from my dad 's death in a way I think masculinity issues, abandonment issues, my issues with love and affection, and all that sort of stuff i 'm very i'm very I hide away from it i can 't deal with it because I, I I think it's because I don't remember it from him. Yes. I remember having a great time with him and him being a great person, but I don't remember affection. I don't remember love from my dad. I don't remember any of that sort of stuff. I don't remember my dad's voice anymore. So I think all of that has been building for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm in a position to to be a lot happier, you know, my career's going really well. I've, I've got more money than I've ever had in my entire life. I'm not broke anymore. I'm not struggling And I still don't feel like I should have that level of happiness that I thought I would at this point. So I started therapy to try and really help, um, help sort a lot of that out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been going great. I'm glad, man. That's
0: really good. It is useful, isn't it? To talk to people about it, to get another perspective on it because you tell yourself these stories in your head and it's so hard to, contradict them even if you know that they're irrational even if you know that whole thing of not feeling worthy or whatever it's a thing you tell yourself and it's really hard to get out of it yeah and i can't imagine what it's like when you've had that kind of experience and you've lost your power you've lost someone you you love like that and and so much of it doesn't make sense and it's not easily explained you know how do you explain the things that drive a person to take their own life it's hard man and, um, anyway, I'm glad that you're sort of, uh, beginning the process of sorting through it. Not that it's ever sorted, you know, we, mm. it's never, <laughs> you're never going to have the day where it's like, okay, that's finished. All done. Happy now. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a question <laughs> of, of managing it, isn't it? It's an ongoing process. Yeah. Anyway, I appreciate you talking with me about it so candidly. I'm also aware that we're coming towards the end of your time. What are you up
2: to, uh, this afternoon? I've got some shows tonight, back back doing shows, which has been it's been fun back doing gigs again.
0: Yeah, it's nice to be in a room with people again, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's been quite a, a mixture because some I think for the first week audiences were were great. They were super supportive. Ah, oh, comedy's back and now they were, that, that that first week race is long gone oh. long gone <laughs> it's, a, oh, it's a completely different game now as well because I think there's also a lot of anxiety at gigs from people because for a lot of them they haven't been around this many people in you know a long time still yeah no one so, knows like am I okay to take my mask off are we sitting yeah. too close And yeah, I also think people are getting slightly more drunk because the whole system of uh, comedy clubs has changed now it's it's all done on the mobile phones now so it's all you order drinks to your tables whereas before with intervals you kind of had to guess how much you were drinking yeah and normally you know most people they would just get one drink for the half whereas now they're just constantly sort of uh, getting drinks and also it's really hot as well yes so people are just yeah more likely to get a bit crazier one of the gig i'm doing tonight is um is Tattershall on the boat? Oh yeah, are, that's Westminster, isn't it? Yeah, that'll be that's always a fun gig. But there's something about a docked boat where people just think it's by nautical rules now, <laughs> like it, it's a completely different game. So uh, yeah, I think that's gonna be really fun tonight.
1: Tattershall
0: Castle—that was yeah. where all the cool people hung out when I was. We were at school down the road, and uh, so in the eighties, that was that was where all the yeah super sexy girls hung out. I can imagine. It's still pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure. And what's your outfit? Got your outfit picked out? Cuz you are you have got quite a sartorial flair to you. I'm always impressed by your outfits on TV. It's really nice Thank to you. see someone who's doing like who's mixing it up and doing some pretty adventurous stuff. <laughs> and I'm not being euphemistic by the way. I think you look great, but you're lucky you're
2: tall. You can carry off these outfits. What are you going to wear tonight? I'm not too sure. I think I'm going to wear a leopard print, if anything. Yes. Leopard print. I've got a, a nice leopard print shirt I think I'm going to wear. But I might... I might... So tomorrow I've got a lot more... I've got a lot of gigs as well tomorrow. I might have to do like a, a t-shirt because I... You know, it's that thing in comedy where you forget it's just going to get really hot on stage. Yeah. And so there's a leopard print shirt behind me that I think I'm going to wear. Or that one there. Yeah, I can see them all hung on a rail. Behind and I'm them. slightly worried because I you just start sweating really bad on... There's nothing worse than seeing a comic on stage and you go, oh, you never planned your outfit properly. Because you see them just sweating in the middle of their set and it's just, whew, whew. And it's not like Lee Evans where they're used to it. No. <laughs> like Lee Evans used to it. Some audiences, there's nothing worse than like doing a gig, doing stand-up, and you, you can feel sweat go from your forehead down to your cheek. Mm-hmm because you just know you've got to wipe it and you've got to sort of change your flow a little bit because it's just it's the most uncomfortable feeling on stage is to feel that bit of sweat because you know everyone they can all see it they the people on the, the people on the right hand side or whatever they could see this bit of sweat coming out of your yeah. face and i hate that feeling so yeah i might i might just have to do a t-shirt or something because there's there's never air con no
0: one of my overriding memories of appearing on panel shows when i used to do that a bit more than i do now was the feeling of a bead of sweat running down from my armpit down the side of my body, and it was so cold. And it was so weird, because it was like I didn't feel hot sat there on Nevermind the Buzzcocks or whatever it was. It wasn't like it was sweltering or anything. It was pure just fear sweat, and it was just going down and dripping down into my pants.
2: My number one worry on TV it's why you really very rarely see me wearing like a denim top is the sweat under the armpits. Yeah. I I remember I did this one show that was like it was like a 3 hour show, it was like a chat thing. And uh, I was wearing a denim jacket and I remember looking at the massive sweat pad, <laughs> and then I had to keep my arms closed the entire show. Yes. And my hands in and then uh, we took a break and I remember that there's these new like sweat pads. Right. that you can get to put in that's supposed to soak up the sweat it just made it worse it was one of my least favourite uh, experiences doing TV because I just knew that as soon as I open my armpits there's somebody at home going Jesus what's going on here
0: wait this is an advert
1: for Squarespace every time I visit your website I see success continue Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: hey welcome back podcats that was darren harriet talking to me there very grateful indeed to darren for making the time especially after i um Sort of screwed up the first attempt at a conversation with him back in 2018. Really nice to see him again and to talk to him. Posted a few links to some of his stuff in the description of this podcast, including links to that series Black Label that he did for Radio 4. I really recommend that. Uh, They're fairly short episodes, four of them, available on BBC Sounds, where you'll be able to hear, I suppose, a more comedic take On some of the things we spoke about. Anyway, thanks very much, Darren. Now I've got to keep this outro fairly brief. So I've got to get back, not another jet. Um, I've got to get back, get on my Brompton, and pedal off to Norwich Station.
1: Shut up.
0: Come to Norfolk. An ideal filming location. A sound person's paradise. Oh, well, I can't wait for it to go. (laughs) I've got to get back, get on my Brompton and cycle to Norwich Station. One of the nice things in recent weeks touring around the country and doing these book shows has been getting back on the trains again. And if you're someone that has read my book or listen to me bollock on in previous years, you'll probably know that I've got a uh, sometimes conflicted relationship with trains. It tends to be, because I take the train a lot, it tends to be somewhere that I occasionally get into confrontations with members of the public or rail officials. In fact, there's not one but two stories of that kind in Ramble Book. With me being a bit of a dick when I get stressed out on overcrowded or delayed trains, that kind of thing. But I've been having a really good experience taking the trains around the country in the last few weeks. Maybe I've just been lucky, or perhaps my attitude has shifted. So when there are delays, I don't get uh, perhaps quite as stressed out as I once did. And also, it just seems to me that The rail officials and the conductors, etc., that I come across are just exceptionally nice at the moment. I met a conductor called Camilla the other day on the train. She took my ticket. We both had masks on. So there was a moment where she was staring at me in a strange way and I couldn't quite work out why. But she recognised my eyes and hat and maybe my pink Brompton And uh, she's a podcat, so she said hello and was very nice. Hi, Camilla. How are you doing? Hope to see you again soon. Sorry about the jets. Buckles and the jets. Also, wanted to... uh, Also, wanted to give a shout-out. This is ridiculous. I also wanted to give a shout-out to the the woman who was working in the ticket office in Cardiff Central when I was there the other day. I don't know her name, and I'm certain she didn't know who I was, but she was so nice. I think her name was... She wrote it down on a bit of paper, and I'll explain why shortly, and I think her name was S... S-T Turton, it looked like, but I wasn't... I'm not sure. Anyway... I'd done a show in Cardiff, lovely show at the gate, beautiful venue, recommended if you're ever in town, thanks to all at the gate, thanks to, there was a a couple of people who worked there called Adam and Joe, hi Adam, hi Joe, thanks for looking after me, thanks especially to Joe who gave me a lovely little bit of artwork he'd created with me on the cover of the Scary Monsters album, Joe had changed it to Hairy Monsters. Anyway, the next morning, I go to Cardiff Central to get my train back to Norwich, put the ticket collection code in the machine, and it said, oh, you've already picked up your tickets. You would have picked them up in Norwich. It didn't say all this to me. I was divining these facts for myself with my mind. I picked them up in Norwich, but why haven't I got them then? So I go to the ticket office, explain the situation, say, I'm not sure what's going on here. It says I've picked up the tickets, but I don't have them. And the woman behind the window, who at first I thought, ah, this doesn't look good. She looks as if she's having a hard day. And um, she's not too excited to help me. She said, well, you've probably left them in the machine in Norwich, in which case you'll have to buy a new ticket. And I
1: said, ah, okay."
0: You know, and I was thinking about, well, I could show her the email that I got from train line after i booked the ticket and sort of start to moan about the fact well i paid my tickets can't you just anyway i didn't have to get to that point because she said well look i'll call norwich and see if they found any tickets in the machine and i thought well that's nice of you but i think we both know how that's gonna go so she goes off for a few minutes comes back and says yep they found your tickets left in the machine, or someone handed them in. You see, this is the other thing, like a nice person found the tickets there uncollected in the machine. Because sometimes there's a few seconds gap between the first set of tickets and then the return tickets plop out. And that's what had happened. I would forgot to wait for the second set, the returns. Someone had found them, handed them in, thanks, whoever that was. And then when the woman from Cardiff phoned up, Norwich, they had the tickets they'd been handed in. And they scanned them and emailed over the scan to Cardiff Central. And the woman in the ticket office printed out the scanned tickets and then stamped them with her special stamp and then wrote underneath, please allow travel. And she said, you know... This is a photocopy, so it's not an official document. And if the conductor says they're not going to accept it, then I'm afraid you'll have to buy another ticket. But it worked. It all worked fine. And um, I got back to Norwich, didn't have to buy another ticket, which would have been at least 100 quid. And it was just so great. And she totally bailed me out and helped me. And I'm so grateful. And, you know, she went that extra mile and, and I, I really appreciated it it just makes your day when something like that happens anyway so thanks, thanks team alright now I've got to get on my bike and head off to Norwich thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his work on this episode thanks to Becca Tashinsky for additional production support thanks to Helen Green, she does the artwork for this podcast thanks to ACAST for all their work on keeping this uh show on the road thanks once again to darren harriet and thanks to you podcats sorry for this uh, rushed exit and sorry for the jets i'm just so sorry i don't know what i can do next time i'm gonna i'll get some kind of rpg and um deal with the situation next time by which i mean i'll just sit inside with a role-playing game <laughs> it's an rpg joke oh god all right hey quick hug next time be careful i love you
1: bye